Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, he must have thought it was money-making movie day, but it ain't money-making movie day, is it? This is True Romance. Welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like True Romance, which we're talking about today. Very exciting. A big movie for us. This is one of the tentpole films of the 1990s, I feel like. Not a lot of people realize it bombed. Seriously. I didn't realize it existed for many years. No, I did know that. Are you sure you were not the director? director of photography on this movie or the gaffer? As far as I know, I was not involved. All right. Well, before we get into true romance, Ian, I know you pre-warned me that you're not really sure how to answer this, but how are you feeling today? I knew you were going to ask that. And I don't know. You know what? I was pretty busy today. So I guess that's what I'm doing. How I'm doing is I don't know, because I didn't have time to check myself, see what's going on. I'm making it through the day. So I got to say that's all I can ask for. I can't disagree too much. The weather's been great. My whole family has their birthdays in a two week span. So it's been a hectic couple weeks. Happy birthday to everybody, by the way. Thank you. My children and my wife as well. All our birthdays in the first two weeks of June. Nice. Knock that all out. We're finally almost through all that. Yeah, we had one big party this past weekend and uh, it was a good time, but I'm ready to get back into, you know, the lazy days, lazy weekends, relaxing and watching movies. That sounds like a good time. Have you had a chance to kick back and put on a movie lately? I did, but I had to cheat in order to make the time. I combined it with my research for this week's episode and I watched a little movie called Man on Fire. Not the first time we brought it up on the show. Oh, I did. No, we talked about it during the uh, the Punisher podcast. Yeah. So I took your recommendation seriously. I watched it as Tony Scott Research because he's the director of that movie as well as today's movie. And mm-hmm. um, it's a good movie. I liked it. The second half of Man on Fire is this absolutely brutal revenge fantasy action flick. But the movie works overall because the first half is a really touching relationship drama between two great actors, Denzel, obviously, and Dakota Fanning, who is really young in this movie and really great. And they show so much heart and humanity and you can't help but fall in love with them as much as their characters fall in love with each other. It's all this heartwarming stuff. And then there's a bonus, Christopher Walken's in it too, like he is in today's movie, except he's a good guy. You got to adjust your walking radar. Like, wait a minute, he's lovable in this movie. He's got a huge heart too. And your heart is swelling for all these great characters. If you're a skeptic like myself, then you were waiting for the other shoe to drop with Walken's character the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Did you have any of that going on? I did. You always do. But it never does. Like, he's just decent. (laughs) He still looks like like the consummate bad guy, but uh, yeah, he's super decent and good in this movie. I hate to keep harping on the Punisher and pointing out its flaws, but that first half really makes the revenge half work, which I mean, why don't more revenge movies follow that formula? I guess they do. I guess the Punisher tried, but you just got to make it good and yeah. just didn't do that. Person. I think that's the difference. You have these little scenes with Denzel and Dakota and you're like, oh my God, I love these two. They're so cute together. And you have these scenes with Tom Jane and his wooden wife and his cardboard child and you're like, fuck this family. It's really intense. <laughs> yeah. And then the the other part of it is 
It's a fun double feature with True Romance because Tony Scott of the 80s and 90s still had his idiosyncrasies. He had a lot of visual tricks he liked to pull out, very kinetic filmmaker. But then by the time Man on Fire comes out, he had leaned super hard into those tendencies, these strange edits and cuts and the super exposed film in certain scenes. Yeah, highly stylized. Extremely highly stylized. And you're starting to see the bones of that by the time True Romance comes out, but he hadn't fully embraced. And then by the time Domino comes out, he basically just run away from the reservation with it. (laughs) was fully gone. Domino barely makes narrative sense because he's way more interested in just having some fun with his camera tricks. Yeah. There's moments in True Romance that I feel some of that Tony Scott kineticism, but Man on Fire is just super stylish. And I feel like he was inspired by the look and feel and the vibe in Mexico City, which sort of allowed him to lean into that stuff. Absolutely. Such a unique setting. Weirdly, it made me want to visit Mexico City, Yeah, which I know maybe isn't the message most people take away from it, but it does really seem like a great place to check out. And uh, actually, Silver Screen Video did a great series on Tony Scott. If any listeners are interested in checking out another podcast, they're they're good dudes. Been a guest on there a couple times. They had a a series on Tony Scott. That's very interesting. It sheds light on some of his filmmaking tendencies. But I wish I knew we were bringing Tony Scott movies to show and tell (laughs) for the Tony Scott movie. I could have watched Crimson Tide or something because I went in a completely different direction and watched Chippendale Rescue Rangers, uh, which frankly, I loved. Nice. We talked about it a little bit in the Happy Time Murders episode. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a super important film for me as a kid and still as an adult. So Chip and Dale is firmly in that world right down to the fact that there's like a seedy underbelly of Hollywood that's focused on cartoon characters, keeping them in their place, so to speak, which the Happy Time Murders also touched on. So it's very much in that wheelhouse, but more lighthearted than even Roger Rabbit, I would say. It's jammed to the gills with crazy references and jokes. And I'm sure everyone's heard that Tim Robinson is in there playing Ugly Sonic, the original Sonic design from the trailer. Okay, now I never came Yeah, I started Chip and Dale and I just didn't get to finish, but I liked what I saw. And it takes a little while for the premise to develop. It does that Roger Rabbit thing where it starts you in the cartoon world and then it peels back layers till you see what's the reality that these characters live in. Yeah. But if you like Andy Samberg, John Mulaney, it's a stellar voice cast through and through. So sure. even though it is a little slow to get started, I was on board just because I'm a big fan of, of those guys. And it's a Lonely Island production, even though it's PG, you see their stamp all over. It was directed by Akiva. I'm sure Yorma had something to do with it at some point. He's got to be in there somewhere. I didn't do the digging beforehand, but I'm sure sure if you search the credits, you'll find his name. I, I recommend it. It's not going to change your life, but me and my son sat down and watched it and he missed a lot of the references, but he still liked it because it's fast, breezy plot with a lot of silly jokes. And I was freaking out because all my favorite cartoons from childhood were represented in one way or another, Neat. even if they were being mocked. That's awesome. <laughs> so, now for a movie that sometimes feels like a cartoon, but a super, super violent, sometimes racist one. True Romance. <laughs> Ian, you alluded to the fact that you don't even know True Romance was a movie for a few years, which is mind boggling <laughs> to me. I may have overstated that. Okay, I had a feeling. I did know it was a movie, but I was literally scared of early Tarantino stuff for several years. And I don't know, maybe I can be forgiven. Reservoir Dogs is a pretty harsh experience. Pulp Fiction, not much less harsh, depending on what your sensibilities are. I was not ready to consume that level of violence in the casual way it was thrown at you. Now, I realized I might have mixed up this movie and Natural Born Killers, which is another, I think, Tarantino penned script, Mm. one of the few that other people directed. I think he worked on it, but I don't think it was fully his script. They say that Oliver Stone took it and did something different with it, but I think it started as a Tarantino nugget. Yeah, he's got the story by credit. So he came up with the premise and probably wrote the first draft and then Stone took it and did his own thing with it. So we can't blame him for the particulars in that movie, but this blending of romance and bloody, brutal violence, this movie is a little more of a lighthearted fantasy despite some really brutal scenes. Anyway, I wasn't ready to take it for a while. I slowly got on board the 
Tarantino train, for better or worse. Now I understand him and I can appreciate what he's trying to do. And so coming back to it now, I was ready for it and I could totally see it for what it was and have a good time with it. I could totally see what you mean about confusing it with natural born killers. They came out very close to each other. Male, female, love story about two violent people. But yeah, I think outside of the superficial details, they're very different movies because like you said, this one is ultimately really is a a movie about romance and Uh love despite some of its proclivities. It ends up being, or at least trying to be a hopeful story, whereas Natural Born Killers is really just nihilism put to celluloid. So Natural Born Killers, not a movie I enjoy. I'm not a huge fan of Oliver Stone in general, to be honest, but yeah, that, that's totally a understandable mistake to make. But True Romance was a movie I did not watch for a long time. My brother had the VHS tape, but you know I was like six or seven when this movie came out, okay. so it was way too much for me. Even when I started getting into the older Tarantino stuff, I know I'd already seen Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown by the time I saw True Romance, but I probably saw Kill Bill, at least the first volume, before I even saw True Romance. Okay. It took me a long time to come around to this movie. I wasn't a big Christian Slater fan. Yeah. I didn't really know any of the other actors because I was a dumb little kid. So there wasn't much drawing me to it. When I finally did watch it, obviously it's super in line with my interests and my taste in movies. So it became a favorite immediately. I've watched it probably five or six times in my life. But it's interesting. I haven't watched it in the last seven or eight years as life's gotten busier and a little more chaotic. And some of the things that had crystallized in my mind about this movie, I found that I was mistaken on, which is an interesting phenomenon. You remember things one way and you're fairly certain that's how they go down. And then you watch the movie and I'm like, did I get a different cut of the movie by accident? (laughs) Some of the stuff is different than I remember, but no, just time and the way your brain works, you can come up with your own narrative there. So it was still a surprise in that sense. That's fun. Yeah, it's a little bit different movie. Yeah, because my brain is decayed. I'm probably losing chunks of it from stress and drugs. So it makes watching movies again fun, though. Yeah, fresh movies. With me, I just avoided all the movies for decades. You can just wipe them out of your brain and get a fresh look at them. It works the same. Ian's is probably better for your long-term health, (laughs) but yeah, we only go around once. Exactly. Did you want me to talk a little bit about the making of this movie and how it came to exist? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. Now known as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Quentin Tarantino was a 30-year-old rising star in Hollywood when 1993 rolled around. Already a controversial figure after the release of his violent, unique neo-noir Reservoir Dogs in 1992, he had written a script for a loosely, and I do mean loosely, autobiographical movie called True Romance, a crime thriller about star-crossed lovers trying to sell off a suitcase of stolen cocaine. Though he initially had hoped to direct it, he eventually moved on to other projects, and True Romance moved forward at Warner Brothers. The studio's first choice for a director was horror filmmaker William Lustig, known for Maniac and Maniac Cop and presumably other movies with the word Maniac in them. Whoa, this guy sounds like a total... Tarantino fought back and the studio eventually decided against Lustig, going with Tony Scott instead. Scott was a hot commodity in Hollywood at the time, having directed hits like Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder, and The Last Boy Scout. Ah yes, an indie filmmaker. Given a relatively modest budget of $12.5 million, Scott got to work casting the movie, but that was also not without its difficulties. Harvey Weinstein, who was working as an executive producer on the film, rejected Christian Slater as the lead due to him being too handsome and suggested somebody like Steve Buscemi instead. Weinstein was fired from the movie for this suggestion. See ya. Would never, ever 
ever want to be you. The casting of Alabama was also tricky with Joan Cusack, Brooke Shields, Uma Thurman, and Jennifer Jason Lee all being considered before the part ultimately went to Patricia Arquette. Filmed during an uncharacteristically cold stretch in Los Angeles between September and December of 1992, the film was set to be released September 10th, 1993. Despite mostly positive reviews, with most negative reviews decrying the film's violence, the movie was a commercial flop, opening in third place at the box office with $4 million and exiting the top 10 by its third week. It would eventually gross $12.6 million theatrically, though its estimation has steadily grown throughout the years and is now routinely included on lists of the greatest movies of all time. Wow. Empire had it at 87, I think, for okay. the 100 greatest movies of all time. Pretty good. I don't know why my voice got all high at the end there. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, this is a movie people really like. Interesting story with Tony Scott. He established himself as like a summer blockbuster dude, especially starting with Top Gun. And maybe you could say everything is slightly downhill from there. But to be handed the keys to the Beverly Hills Cop franchise for the second movie. He's Which made over $200 million at yeah. the box office. That was a huge movie. I did not realize it had such a big fan base at the time. Beverly Hills yeah. Cop 2 was a huge hit. Yeah, so you can't say he dropped the ball there. And then they're like, oh, we want you to do a little $12 million movie, which even for 1992, 93 money doesn't sound like much. And it's like, what were they thinking this movie would do? Right. I think Scott really liked the script. And there's a few little tidbits of behind the scenes info that kind of indicate he really did fall in love with the characters and the story, even his cast and crew, although there are some troubling stories from the set as well. But it did feel like a passion project for him. Maybe it was his way of making a, a less commercial movie because the last Boy Scout made money, but it wasn't anybody's idea of a great film. He might have seen his chance to get back into making movies he was passionate about with this one. That's my hypothesis. That's a totally reasonable way to imagine it. He invested himself in this. This is a, such a Tarantino film by its themes and its characters. And you can tell that although Tony Scott made it his way, he didn't go, oh, actually, I think it should be something really different and try to twist it. So it's not a movie that's fighting with itself due to a struggle between the director and the author. Yeah. And I think he kept Tarantino in the loop pretty heavily. Okay. He had feedback on the changes he made. And Tarantino did say he changed the ending in a big way, but that was the only huge change that was made. And he grew to agree with Scott about the ending of the movie. And maybe if Tarantino had directed it and the tone was a little different, Tarantino's original ending would have made more sense. And we'll get into what that was and what was changed eventually. But he said, no, the way Scott told the story, I agree with the ending that he came up with. He supported it. And he was a big fan of this movie. That's a happy ending story. Because we know that after this, and as we said, Natural Born Killers, which was one of those Tarantino scripts that got twisted, like he stopped writing for people, except there's some uncredited work. For Dust Till Dawn. Oh, for his buddy. But that's like, that's his only relationship that was that tight, yeah. him and Rodriguez. And also he starred in it. He was the second lead, essentially. So he, he was on set every day, I'm sure. It was a very collaborative filmmaking experience. Also, From Dust Till Dawn is fucking great, you guys. Like, I actually got a beer glass that has scenes from it. Like, you showed into, me. Yeah, That's it's awesome. Wild. I don't know how to put it on the show notes. Oh, I could get the website that I bought it from and just put that in the show sure. notes so other people could buy it if they want it. That's smart, yeah. Uh, they have some other glasses with scenes from famous movies that are pretty cool. But Tarantino's always had a weird knack for strange stuff. Didn't he direct a bunch of episodes of ER? Am I misremembering that? I would believe you. He, he's always going off on these weird little passion projects and tangents. Speaking of tangents, our boy Clarence goes off on a few in this movie. Did you want to walk us through the first leg of the story? Yeah, why don't we just dive right in? All right. Clarence, played by Christian Slater, is a comic book store clerk and an Elvis fanatic. 
On his birthday, he goes alone to a kung fu movie where he meets a girl named Alabama, played by Patricia Arquette. They hit it off, and they go home together, where she admits to him that she's a call girl, hired by his boss as a birthday present. But neither one of them cares, because they've genuinely fallen in love, and the next day, they get married. Then Clarence has a vision of Elvis, who tells him he ought to kill Bama's old pimp Drexel, played by Gary Oldman. In a violent showdown at Drexel's brothel, Clarence kills the pimp and takes what he thinks is Bama's suitcase, but it's actually full of uncut cocaine. Seeing what they've got, the newlyweds pack up the cocaine and head for California, dropping in on Clarence's estranged dad on their way out of Detroit. A lot to dig into in this section of the movie, but yeah. uh, I could not shake the feeling, and I didn't know that this was considered Tarantino's quote-unquote autobiographical script when I started watching the movie, uh-huh. is Christian Slater is just playing Tarantino, especially in this section of the movie, right? Absolutely. It took a while to dawn on me because Tarantino characters always share some of Tarantino's interests. They like to go off about music or movies and stuff, and that's exactly how you meet Christian Slater's Clarence character. He's just sitting in a bar talking to almost nobody about Elvis in the movie Jailhouse Rock, just gushing about him. And then the subject switches to kung fu movies. And after a minute, I'm like, this is just Tarantino. He just wrote down something he told a chick at a bar one time. He's literally listing his passions. And then when he finally meets up with Alabama, what does he do? He takes her to a comic book store and shows her some comic books. Was another passion of Tarantino. So he really just set this character up to be like, it's an easy writing exercise, I guess, when you're starting out as a screenwriter. You're like, I'll just write it from my point of view. I know what I like. I know what I would say in that situation. Yeah, it's classic writer stuff. And he was famously a video store clerk, right? That's part of his formative years was... I think he did also work at a comic book store, though. Oh, so he did, did he? Okay. Those jobs. Oh, okay, so he didn't yeah. even have to translate it. It was literal. It's him, and I guess he didn't disagree with casting a very handsome young Christian Slater to play himself. What the fuck do you mean, Steve Buscemi, he seemed to say, <laughs> with his sunken, beady little eyes. I'll take Christian Slater, please, if Brad Pitt is too busy playing Floyd. But <laughs> I did want to shout out Anna Thompson as Lucy, the girl yes. he is talking at at the bar. She's such a unique actress, and I couldn't remember where I saw her from. She stood out to me from Bad Boys, which came out a few years after this. Okay. She had a very memorable small part in that as a receptionist at the police department. Ah. Uh, but, and you also remembered her from a movie around the same time. Right? I had the same thing. I'm like, oh my God, I know that actress. Her face is so evocative. Where do I know her? And for me, it was Unforgiven, which I looked up, came out the year before this. And she plays the prostitute who is cut by the thugs and has the scarred face. And she, as an actress, just has this incredible vulnerability. It's really powerful. So in this scene where she plays this really small role, you're drawn to her. It's kind of magnetic. And she has such a, an old Hollywood look and feel about her, too. She seems like she's out of time in every movie. Everything from her looks to her voice, to just her acting style feels like she's been snatched out of the 1950s. I'm curious why she didn't have a bigger career because she's very talented. And every time I see her in something, I'm always happy about it. Yeah. And she wisely turns down Clarence's offer to go watch three kung fu movies because I like kung fu movies as much as the next guy, but three of them with a stranger. No, thank you. And also, as we'll come to find out shortly, hanging out with Clarence is just a bad idea in general. It's iffy. It's interesting for a guy who has a really boring life, theoretically, leading up to this point. Things get exciting real fast. They do. And he's well equipped to handle it, which was one thing this movie feels like it's not exactly existing in our planet Earth. Things happen and you just kind of have to roll with it. This movie is very easy to nitpick if you want to nitpick little things. Sure. But you'll have a much better time if you don't. But everything from Alabama proclaiming her love for him after one night with him to the circumstances of this odyssey they go on, it tests the limits of suspended disbelief. (laughs) Yeah, I think we both said similar things to each other when we revisited the movie is that the title is a reference to these pulpy novels, 
true romance sounds thin and cheesy, but it can also be taken very earnestly. This is Tarantino's idea of a true love romance. It's a pure love story. It's a happy fantasy. It's a fable. It's a fairy tale. So like a lot of the logic is fairy tale logic. The characters become a prince and a princess who are a little bit special and out of the ordinary for reasons that can't totally be explained. Yeah, a modern bloody fairy tale is probably the best way to describe this movie. But Mm -hmm. let's talk about Alabama a little bit the meat cute where she spills her popcorn all over him at the Kung Fu movie. I, there's no shot. This wasn't a setup from the jump, right? Did you also <laughs> she, call that out? Yeah, they didn't try to be subtle with that. She's just like in this nearly empty theater, walks right up behind this guy and pours her popcorn on him. I'm like, okay, what the heck's going on? She likes all the things he likes. She compliments him and just wants to hear more about him because he's so interesting. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I immediately know what's going on here. But it's still very sweet. It's fun watching the night they have together and him just being a dork but then they have sex and if you had any doubts that this was a setup like he just talked to her about elvis comic books and kung fu movies till the wee hours of the morning still got laid something's probably amiss here well that's the thing is it is a setup but then she comes clean and says yes it was a setup but i feel terrible because i actually fell in love with you for real during this fake relationship that i was supposed to be having with you and then we're supposed to just take that at face value right like she ends up saying well the only one i lied about was that i like the partridge family i don't actually like them but everything else i was right there with you buddy it's funny the deep connection he has with her because she's very reluctant to offer anything up about herself when he asks her like what's your favorite color she's like, all right remember. she tells him nothing <laughs> at all yeah she tells him nothing about herself and he's still like we have such a connection which is such a dude thing to do you know <laughs> you let me talk at you for seven hours you're the love of my life <laughs> it is the like fairy tale version of this is it's true love the cynical version is these are a couple idiot kids who just think they're in love but they're really pretty dumb because they don't know shit about each other now i, I understand uh, the theater they're watching these kung fu movies at is the Vista Theater, right? Which is in LA. Yeah. In LA stalwart. Here they are in Detroit. The taxi cab drops them off and it has the word Detroit on the roof light just to make sure you don't forget that you're in Detroit because they're showing the Vista Theater, which happens to be at the corner of Sunset and Hollywood Boulevard. Kind of famous streets if you've ever heard of Los Angeles before. Some people have. And they happen to come together at this one place near where I grew up. The Vista Theater is four or five short residential blocks from where I went to junior high. So it's a very familiar place to me. When I was a little kid, it was a gay porn theater and then it became a sort of second-run movie theater, and then it became a boutique theater. And then, a couple of years ago, Tarantino bought it. Yeah, I was gonna. I didn't know if you knew that tidbit. I was about to drop it on you at the end of your spiel, but that theater now right. owned by none other than QT himself. Yeah, so it's being transformed. It apparently, he's gonna put an arcade in there and a bar. It's and, gonna be first run. Yeah, yeah. It's be, he also owns the New Beverly. Right, I'm not sure what neighborhood in LA that's in. Oh, okay, yeah, it's a little west from here. Okay, yeah, he also owns the New Beverly, and that I think he shows more older films. But the Vista is gonna be a first run theater. Cool. He should buy the Cinerama Dome too, because I don't want the Cinerama Dome to go. I never got to see a movie there, and I always wanted to. Yeah, I wonder if he's got that in his radar because that would be another classic LA theater you would hate to see get the wrecking ball. It's still closed, right? But just it hasn't been demolished yet. You know, I haven't been into Hollywood in a couple of years, but I hope they didn't start demolishing it. Why? Is something going on outside? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I have my suspicions. But we can't be sure. <laughs> now we got to talk about Drexel. Yeah. Alabama's pimp played by Caucasian British man, Gary Oldman. Yes. And you might think that is a bit of description I didn't need to give. You'd be wrong because Drexel believes he is a black man, I guess. That's how Alabama describes him. And then we meet him and yeah, this guy's got a thing going on. <laughs> this is one of the things I misremembered because when I looked back on True Romance and Gary Oldman's performance, I always thought 
He was like a doofus as Drexel, the kind of guy who would trip over his own feet and was just a bit of a fuck up. But then I'm watching the movie now and I'm like, he's actually good at being a criminal. Like he gets his shit done. The first time we meet him, he's ripping off these other dealers for their coke and he kills them and gets away scot-free. And I'm like, oh, like he's actually formidable. Yeah. Which I don't know why I misremembered that he was more of like a bumbling idiot, but no, he's not, which I don't know what that does to his character. Does it make him better, worse? I don't know. It's just something interesting, I thought. And I wonder if anyone else has that shared phenomenon of just something that was off in your memory about a movie. That's interesting that you say that because there is that aspect to him, right? His personality is ridiculous. If he wasn't an extremely evil and dangerous person, you would laugh at him for what a jackass he is. But he's fucking actually scary, right? And he's got yeah. this crazy, he's got this crazy personality. That showdown, Tarantino loves to write a good talkie showdown and he has characters face off verbally. And this is the first one in this movie. There's more to come and we'll talk about that. But the scene of Clarence versus Drexel is Maybe my favorite one in this movie, Drexel's monologue where he's swinging the lamp and shining the light onto Clarence. And he's just, he's good, man. It's a problematic character, but he's evil. So he's not glorified for his problematic aspects. He's totally corrupt. Which is a problem person. we might have to grapple with the Dennis Hopper character. A yeah, later. that's a tougher scene to reckon with. Clifford right. Morley. Yeah, but I do agree. That scene where they're going back and forth, or I guess it's it's more Oldman uh, monologuing. But then I also really like Slater's rebuttal. Yes. You kind of think that that Drexel has gotten the, the cut of him as a man and, and he's dressed him down and he's going to wither, but he doesn't. He comes no. right back and he's meeting him every step of the way. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I think most movies would have a character like this slowly like morph into more of a badass by the end of the movie, but start off as meek. But no, he's right there with him from the very beginning. And I couldn't help but thinking like he probably learned how to talk like this from movies is the vibe I got from both Clarence and Tarantino. I was like, this is what a tough guy in a movie would say, yeah. which is probably why he's saying it and probably why Tarantino wrote it. It sounds like movie dialogue in a way that a lot of Tarantino dialogue doesn't. It's funny that you say that because there's also movies referenced in his comeback. So Clarence does his little comeback speech after you say Gary Oldman dresses him down and you're like, oh shit, this is little meek nerd Clarence. And then we see Clarence transform. He's actually cooler than we thought. And one of the things he says, yeah, I didn't look at the movie playing on the screen the whole time because I saw that seven years ago. And that's the Mac starring so-and-so and so-and-so. It's Tarantino's version of spanking the guy back with movie facts, which right. in itself is kind of dorky. But in the end, he physically bests Strexel and kills him and his right-hand man. So he does get the better of him. He becomes a pretty capable hero. Shoots him in the dick, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, pretty bloody. Pretty, pretty bloody, <laughs> yeah. That's the point where this movie, you're like, oh, I, I understand what movie I'm in now. But we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about why he went to see Drexel and murder him, because Elvis told him to. Yeah, what's up with Elvis? He's a little more violent than I remember him, but... Yeah, this Baz Luhrmann movie is going to be crazy if this is the <laughs> Elvis that they're portraying. But no, but that's Val Kilmer playing Elvis in that role doing a good Elvis impression honestly really good really fun twist that there's this surreal element inside Clarence's head is this vision of Elvis that gives him advice in his moments of need I mean the advice in this situation sets off this chain of events that are not great so I don't know if Elvis is like the angel or the devil on his shoulder because then later in the movie, I think he helps him out a little more. So Yeah, he props him up near the end. This time, he's a real instigator. He's like, you know that pimp? You got to fucking kill him. Shoot that guy. 
He deserves to be plugged in the head. And he's like, oh, really? Okay. And then after that, it, it transforms him into this angel of death. If he was really a big Elvis fan, he would have killed Drexel with karate. Yeah. Well, karate chop on him. It's only two kind of people that know what it is. The Chinese and the king. One of them's me. What is that from? It's from Walk Hard when Jack White is Elvis Presley. <laughs> no, remember that scene? I remember Jack White as Elvis, but I didn't recognize the line. He keeps like almost karate chopping him being like, look out. It's, it's a great scene. Yeah. I guess those are compatible versions of Elvis, that one and this Val Kilmer. Right. One of them a little more serious. I guess Jack White took the role a little more seriously and did a lot of research into his voice and mannerisms more than Val Kilmer did probably. That's sarcasm, but no, both great portrayals. I'm curious to see what Austin Butler does with it. I do not have high hopes for that movie. Who knows what that's going to be. It looks like somebody watched Walk Hard and was like, not ridiculous enough. Make it even crazier. All right. So I did want to call out that Clarence leaves the crime scene, goes back to his apartment with Alabama. Alabama has been waiting there for him. He brings her a bunch of cheeseburgers. And when she starts crying after finding out that he's murdered a bunch of people. He's really awful to her. Did you track this? Like, he's pretty terrible in this scene. I know what you mean. It's disconcerting, right? Because you're like, oh shit, their new lovey-dovey relationship is already on the rocks. He's revealing himself as a jerk. But I gave him a pass. Because he just fucking killed a man. He actually killed two men. It was really violent and he had never done anything like that before. So I'm like, okay, this is a man who is, he's on the edge, it's right? apart, yeah. He's, yeah, he's pounding cheeseburgers and going, this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted. Like, he is really off the rails. Those were big kahuna burgers too. They had Ooh, to be. It's a tasty burger. There's a lot of hamburgers in this film and it does make me want to go out to some kind of shack and order something. Tarantino loves his burgers. But you could clearly tell in Pulp Fiction that the big kahuna burger was just a McDonald's cheeseburger. Mm. They just changed the rack. It was pretty obvious. Don't try to sneak a McDonald's cheeseburger by me, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I guess it's a fair reading of it. He's in a little bit of a manic state because of what just happened, but I was still taken aback this early in their romance. He's being a little, I don't want to say abusive, but it walks up to the line there because he's not being physically abusive in any way, but verbally berating her a little bit. He's being a shit. And then she flips on him because he's yelling at her for like, why are you crying? Are you, did you love Drexel? Which is ridiculous. Who could love that man? Yeah. This very immature relationship relationship stuff that he was instantly jealous of the ex-boyfriend who he just killed. But then the big reveal is that she thinks that's the most romantic thing. So it actually cements their relationship even more. All right. You ready to move on to the middle portion of the movie? Yeah. Let's hear what happens next. A lot of people get shot. It turns out that the missing cocaine belonged to the mafia, and so a crew of mobsters led by Vincent Cacati, played by Christopher Walken, interrogate and kill Clarence's dad to find out where the kids went. Now in L.A., Clarence meets up with his old friend Dick Ritchie, played by Michael Rappaport, an aspiring actor who helps him find a buyer for the drugs. Dick's friend Elliot is the assistant to movie producer Lee Donowitz, who agrees to meet and buy the cocaine, but then Elliot is stopped for speeding and the cops find the cocaine sample he's carrying. Threatening him with jail time, a pair of detectives convince Elliot to wear a wire and turn Clarence's drug deal into a major bust. So this uh, summarized a lot of stuff down pretty quick, and if anybody who's watching this film along with us, literally, the Elliot getting caught by the cops happens more in the third act, but it flows better in the storytelling with the second act stuff, so that's why we mention it here because it's easier to talk about in this order. And the third act, a lot of stuff starts happening real fast. And so we put all the violence at the end. Yeah, the third us. act is essentially one long gunfight, more or less. But it, probably the most famous scene in this movie is the showdown between Vincent and Clifford, which is Walken and Hopper, respectively. Interesting to see Dennis Hopper playing, actually interesting to see both of them playing like just dudes. Yes. You know, neither of them are, are doing any real affectations with their speaking patterns. None of them are being just 
just like wild, crazy people, which, you know, Hopper, I think has played like three or four mentally stable people in his life. And this seems maybe like one of them until I guess that's debatable. But he he goes for it in in his final moments. But yes, until that moment, he is super normal, especially for a Dennis Hopper character. He is just like, hey, I'm just a dad. I'm a security guard. This is my kid. I'm trying to help him out with what's going on. There's no other twist to it. And like you said, Christopher Walken same thing. You're expecting him to go a little bigger, but he makes a really nice choice by playing this character who has some wonderful dialogue, playing him really straight and matter of fact, and that makes him cooler and scarier in a way. Yeah, I really enjoyed this walk and performance. I feel like 93, maybe you get up until 97, 98 before every Christopher Walken performance starts feeling like he's playing Christopher Walken. Uh, yeah. So these are still those performances I treasure. And that's not to say that there's not good stuff that comes out of that period of his career, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely- being Christopher Walken in all his roles after a certain point. Yeah, this is not self-caricature Chris Walken. This is the good stuff in this movie. And before we move on from Dennis Hopper as the dad, and I know we've got more because we got to get to the end of the scene where things get gnarly. I have another little mini tidbit. Can I throw a second tidbit into the same oh, show? Two, two Ian tidbits? Ian, you can throw as many tidbits in the show <laughs> as you have. All right. Here's the second one. Tidbit. Mini tidbit. Hopper plays Christian Slater's dad. And Ian, me, real me, once stood in line in a bank next to real Christian Slater's dad. And how do I know that? Because he was really interested in telling everybody in the bank line that, hey, I'm Christian <laughs> Slater's daddy. And he didn't talk like that at all. But that's the way I keep his memory alive in my mind. It's like a middle-aged guy chatting up the lady next to him in the bank line. This is back when people used to wait in line in banks. I don't know if that's a thing yeah. anymore. You used to do all your work with a robot now. We used to get checks and there'd be big lines of people. And so here's a guy chatting up the lady next to him. And they're like, this gentleman is kind of animated and weird. And why is he talking so much to a stranger? And it was because this whole time he was trying to get out this factoid about himself that, oh yeah, Christian Slater, that's my boy. I'm his daddy. Interesting. He seemed like a nice guy. He seemed totally nice, a little bit high strung, more high strung than Dennis Hopper. From- you mean more high strung than Clifford Worley? Because I don't think anyone was more high strung than Hopper <laughs> okay. when he had yes. to turn it on. More high strung than Clifford for sure. All right. I love these tidbits. <laughs> I grew up in New York. You grew up in LA. You definitely got the cooler celebrity interactions. I do remember seeing Sam Rockwell in line for coffee and cool. if I had the thought that if I just ran up and punched him in the head I'd be on the news that would be cool <laughs> but then I was like I don't want to punch Sam Rockwell in the head. he seems like a nice guy so yeah that would be a sad reason to get on the news I know but it's just with those invasive thoughts you can't help but have like I could be a little <laughs> bit famous if I just punched this guy but I, I didn't do it I didn't do it my friend Matt I'm my friend Matt talked to Jake Gyllenhaal outside of a movie theater and said he was very nice oh nice so that's that's all I got we have some celebrities here okay. but to the same degree you guys do and uh, yeah but the showdown between Walken and Hopper is just top-notch stuff. I know there was a line you wanted to call out, right? Yeah. So as an example of Walken's low-key delivery, he punches Dennis Hopper's character in the face and he says, what I have to offer you, that's as good as it's going to get. And it won't ever get that good again. It's just really good dialogue that's, and really well that's delivered. That's really good dialogue. I love that line. Yeah. Plus Quentin Tarantino, he knows how to write a movie. Yeah. And, and Christopher Walken knows how to deliver it. Did Dennis Hopper's dog just run away though? Like he parks gets out of his car and his Rottweiler just bolts in the other direction. And with the way the scene goes, it's probably for the best. But I was like, he didn't like chase him or anything. He just like calls after him once and goes, oh, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> that's when he's going into his death. It's almost like he knows he's doomed, although he doesn't at that moment. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then uh, there is a long, long, long speech given by Clifford about the yes. nature of Sicilian people, I guess. That is 
uh, their heritage. Tough pill to swallow in this day and age. Yeah. Especially from a character we're supposed to be rooting for. Yeah. It's just not great. A guy who was wholesome up to this point. Yeah. He makes this attempt through a pretty racist tirade to annoy Christopher Walken's character enough and enrage him enough to get him to kill him so that he doesn't have to be tortured into revealing the location of his kids. So like the motivation makes sense. The scheme makes sense and it works. It's just very hard to listen to and something that I think filmmakers today would check themselves and say, like, this all could happen in the real world, but maybe we're not the people to bring this piece of content to the screen in this form. I don't know. What do you think? I agree. No, I don't think there's a shot this gets put on screen today, but it's, this is so hard to talk about, man. It's very difficult. It's like, there had to be another way. I know Quentin Tarantino has his proclivities with certain slurs that he likes to use over and over again. And I think we're we're all fed up with it at this point. And this was like early in his career when maybe he wasn't getting called out enough on it, or if it was, it wasn't by people who had their voice amplified enough for him to even notice. Right. That makes sense. Now it feels very much like a time capsule in, in a bad way where a lot of this movie feels like a time capsule in a good way. Yeah, and it's just a bummer and a drag. And I think that's the the best way I could say about it because I'm not qualified to say much more about it, but it just sucks, man. Like, I wish it wasn't in there. I wish they they figured out another way to achieve this goal, but they didn't. And this is the movie we have now. Yeah, we started out talking about how promising and interesting these characters were. And then in the end, we have to walk away from it and go, okay, let's leave that in the past and move on. Not to mention the fucking dipshit Clifford wrote Clarence and wife in L.A. visiting Dick (laughs) and left it on his fucking fridge. So even if he gets tortured and killed, they never think to glance at the fridge. They're going to find out whether he gives it up or not. Just tell him, man. It's on the fridge. Yeah. You dipshit. Fucking idiot. All right. That's my rant about Clifford Worley. Maybe an idiot for all we know. You don't even have to get punched in the face. But yeah, they're in L.A. because they're going to find out no matter what you do. They were going to kill you the second they walked in. If you couldn't tell that, then you're a fool. So then I guess it's time to talk about... When the movie goes, and I'm going to put this in big quotes, goes to L.A. Because the movie's been in L.A. the whole time. But now we no longer have to pretend we're in Detroit. We're actually in L.A. And we meet. I put a note here that Ian tells us something about where they shot the movie tied to his childhood, young adulthood. But you already did that. I was just guessing. Taken care of. Check that one off. (laughs) That was, yes. A shot in the dark and I was on the mark. I can vouch. John had written that down before I said anything. And then I said, you know that thing you wrote? I got two of them. Always has to one up me. I love it. Sorry. I love the Ian tidbits. I honestly, I cannot get (laughs) enough of them let's talk about michael rapaport as dick ritchie is michael rapaport a bad actor or is dick ritchie a bad actor i don't know that michael rapaport's a bad actor he's like a personality i don't like outside of movies Uh if that makes sense but I think he's good at playing like a nervous idiot, which I guess is what he's doing in this movie. Yeah, I do think he may be limited as an actor. He's not going to be taking every kind of role, but he's cast well in this. And his character, though, is no good at all at acting. So that made me question, what is the commentary of this little side story of the movie is actually trying to make about Hollywood? Because he's a terrible actor. They go through great lengths to establish him just totally goofing this audition. But yet he gets the part without even a callback. What is that? What do we what do we to make of that? And the the casting director seemed totally like blowing him off in the scene where they met too. Exactly. You don't see it coming. She's not fawning over him. She's like, okay, you're done. Bye. Thank you. She does say that was very impressive, but in such a flat delivery that you feel like it's just something she says to everybody to get them out of the room. Yeah, exactly. So that she doesn't have to hear from them again. But yeah, he's fine in this role. This is the type of role I feel like he excels at. He was pretty terrible in season five of Justified, which is my Justified crossover of the week. Bam. We need, we need a- to. Yeah, we're going to start doing a, a thing for that. Justified crossover of the week. Because Michael Rapp is the main antagonist of season five of Justified playing Daryl Crow. I'm trying to remember the name off the top of my head. It's good stuff. But he's bad in that season. Like his character's good, but he's trying oh, he's trying to bad. do a southern accent and he cannot pull it off. 
Oh yeah, that what it's who asked him to do that? That seems really ill-advised. Yost, was it a fate? I don't know. Was someone doing him a favor? Like he's like, I need a steady paycheck. Just rewrite the character, man. Well, he's supposed to be related <laughs> to a character that's been on the show for all the seasons. Who is a Southern man? Oh, Actually, played tough time to start. Did fresh. you ever watch Corey? I know I told you about Corey a bunch of times. No, I never did. Oh, a good show. And one of the actors in that is um, also on Justified, which is why I was gonna I was gonna bring it up. Ah. Watch Corey. It's so fucking good. Okay. It's a limited series that was on Cinemax, and so nobody saw it, but it's one of the best single seasons of television I've ever seen. All right, I'm putting that in the basket with. Terriers and Banshee. Do I have all my little shows that nobody knows about? Man, I have great fucking taste in television. Yes. <laughs> did I get that yeah. right? I, I did that from yeah, memory. Yeah, those are the three. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I have more that I can recommend, but that's a good place to start. Okay. And then, so, of course, this was one of the early roles of Brad Pitt. He'd already done Thelma and Louise, I'm fairly certain, and he'd done Cool World, so he okay. was an up-and-comer. But... Floyd was a big deal for him because he fucking kills it as Floyd. Oh my God. So much fun. So funny. It's funny because Michael Rappaport, I was just about to say like Dick Ritchie, he's this goof. You're like, oh, now we've got the comic relief character. But the comic relief character has a roommate who's his comic relief character who's way funnier and it's Brad Pitt as this total stoner just sitting on the couch and saying the dumbest shit. You called out that line, but uh, when the mobster leaves, (laughs) don't condescend me, man. I'll fucking kill you. Like he just mumbles it under his breath. (laughs) Under his breath. After Gandolfini walks away and says, thanks, maybe I'll see you later. And he says it, don't condon. I can't do the delivery, but he says, don't condescend me, man. And it's just, it's perfect. Also wearing like a Rasta hat he apparently found on the Venice Beach boardwalk. Just decided like, this is going to be part of my character now. So yeah, all his choices in this were just impeccable. Smoking 1993 weed. I can't even imagine what that did to your lungs. Shit was probably mostly motor oil. Yeah, smoking it out of a, a bong he made out of a plastic bear honey jar. Oh, that's cute, though. I feel like plastic. Yeah, that's not good, though. You don't want to burn plastic and inhale the fumes. It's not a good idea. Not either. really. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, Bronson Pinchot? Yes. Ooh, love him. Interesting factoid. You are knee deep in the leftovers right now, aren't you? Yes. He, he has a little role to play in that. But, well, actually, Marklin Baker has more of a role to play in The Leftovers. A, yeah. That's true. So we're talking about, yeah, <laughs> that was cool. Because like Marklin Baker hasn't been in a ton of stuff since Perfect Strangers was no. on. But now we've got two things in two weeks we're talking about with the, the leads of Perfect Strangers in it, which neither of them been in a ton of stuff. Bronson Pinchot's got more of a career than I thought, though, than when I was looking him up for this. He's had some solid roles and he's still working. I feel like he's kind of underrated. He has a very specific vibe, so he couldn't do a really broad range of roles, I feel like. But this is perfect casting like he's great as this kind of character smarmy entitled douchebag yeah there's something good about him and he also does uh, a fair amount of narration for audiobooks because oh. he has actually a really good interesting voice i've heard him reading stuff that he was just a narrator and it's also good that is cool i know he had a role in lodge 49 which is a show that people really liked and i've been meaning to check out because i've really come to respect wyatt russell as an actor, and he's the lead on that. He was great in Under the Banner of Heaven. Okay. He's, Kurt, he's Kurt Russell's son, if that wasn't clear. Okay. But he, yeah, so Lodge sure. 49, another Bronson Pinchot thing that has been highly regarded by critics lately. So yeah, he's still killing it, man. Good for him. But he's good in this role. Yeah. I mean, he's great. As Elliot, like you said, he does exactly what the role asks him to. He makes you hate him, but also kind of pity him. And he gets knocked around. They take him. This is another example of Clarence showing off his newfound skills. He used to just be a bullshitter who used to turn off women in bars. But now he uses those same talking skills to fucking make drug deals. And he fucking wheedles Elliot pretty well. He he comes up with a 
cover story for where he got the drugs from, because Elliot's no dummy in this. He demands some answers, and Clarence is right there with them, and he takes him to the amusement park and makes him sick on a roller coaster to throw him off his game and, and ends up besting him in this verbal match. What did you think of that? This is another example of Clarence now has kind of powers that he didn't seem to show before in his life. It's very much harkens back, I think, to the fairy tale nature of the story. The hero's been living an ordinary life until he gets called upon to do great things, except in this case, mm. the great things is selling a bunch of Coke. It's a slightly dingier fairy tale with more nefarious origins, but it feels like that. He's almost like self-actualizing as the movie goes on and becoming who he was always meant to be. That's a great way to think about it, because yeah, he is just gaining more and more strength using his powers for his own benefit. Later on, he has to deal with the bigger boss up the line. He gets to Lee Donowitz, totally smooth talks Lee Donowitz, wins him over. Not to mention in the third act, he does this crazy scene where he dresses Elliot down with a gun to his head to test him to make sure that he's not being set up. And of course, he's wrong. He excuses him when he shouldn't, but it's a scene of incredible intensity that you're like, where did this come from? But that's his fairy tale powers. Yeah. Before we leave the amusement park, I just wanted to point out because I brought it up at the top of the show. I felt like Tony Scott was totally in his element when they got on that roller coaster. That was like Tony Scott, quick cutting, crazy angles, lots of fast shots. He's like, there's not that much action in this movie. Let me go nuts with the fucking roller coaster. And he does. And the roller coaster is a setting where you can totally get away with that. Whereas like later his career, like in Domino, somebody will just be walking across a parking lot and he'll use those same cuts and like techniques because <laughs> you didn't give a fuck anymore. But it totally makes sense <laughs> on a roller coaster, especially because he's talking to Elliot, who is freaking out, having motion sickness problems. So it puts you in, right, in Elliot's shoes where you're feeling disoriented and a little dizzy. Was that Knott's Berry Farms, as far as you could tell? I was going to say, I think it is. I am not the best amusement park specialist, but I was going to say Knott's Berry Farms. I know you did mention you're not a roller coaster guy at the beginning of an episode a couple weeks ago. So I was prepared for that. But yeah. Knott's Berry Farms, pretty iconic. I've always wanted <laughs> to visit it. I'm going to get out to LA one day. It's not yet. We had to talk about Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn being cast as narcotics cops. Yes. What casting? What spot on casting? R.I.P. Chris Penn, maybe, unless he sucked. I don't know. But Tom Sizemore is playing his role as if he dipped into the evidence locker a little bit and got some coke out. You're not kidding there. He is scratching the neck. His eyes are bugging out. He's laughing. He's twitching. We have no way of knowing if Tom Sizemore was just really high when he made this or if he was making a character choice and tried to play his character that way. It's that tidbit everyone always- method acting? Yeah, everyone brings up that tidbit about Al Pacino's character and he uh, he was supposed to be on coke and they cut the sub plot and i was like they didn't cut the subplot from al pacino's life uh, i'm pretty sure he was on coke for all those scenes <laughs> check the pupils but yeah getting some vincent hannah vibes from sizemore in this movie even though this movie came out first yeah those are some very big personality cops which makes it fun for the third act because it gets wild and things start crashing together and so all of a sudden there's these pair of guys that help precipitate this very violent ending but also the actors we didn't talk about one of the very first things in this movie the opening credits rolled and this is the first time mind you that i've ever seen this movie and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The names keep coming at you. Yeah. Actor after actor. It's so stacked. And then finally, after 10 or 12 great names, then the next thing they show is casting by. And I was ready to stand up and clap for those two casting directors. They did such an amazing job totally stalking this movie. And then here's another example. Yeah. And getting some people before their big break, Samuel Jackson and James Gandolfini and even Brad Pitt were not the names yeah. they are today or, or were in the case of Gandolfini, sadly. But just like what foresight to find these great great actors and put them in these small but important roles. And the first scene with Drexel, you hear Samuel L. Jackson talking about eating pussy, which is a very Quentin Tarantino yeah, topic. Another, it is the perfect 
Tarantino, Sam Jackson moment. And and you're like, okay, now we set this up. Sam Jackson is going to be a big character in this movie. And 20 seconds later, he's blown away. And that's it. That was all he was there I for. I was shocked to hear that he was in this movie because I was like, I would have remembered if Samuel Jackson was a big character in this movie. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh, that's why. He didn't even have time to take off his hat and coat. He gets in this quick little funny Tarantino patter and then boom, the shotgun comes out. Quentin Tarantino loves to put Samuel Jackson in situations where he talks about what he enjoys doing with women, like giving foot rubs and Pulp Fiction, eating <laughs> pussy and true romance. I can't remember what it was in Jackie Brown, but I bet there's something in there too. It's gotta be. <laughs> He's such a good actor though. But uh, good shout though. We should give some credit to the casting directors of this movie because what a fucking all-star ensemble this movie is. And people just keep showing up and you're like, holy fuck. Like yeah. up until the third act, we're meeting new characters. Like Saul Rubinek pops up as Lee Donowitz and you're like, oh shit, there's fucking guys in this movie too. Yeah, he kicks ass in this too. He's a perfect casting for this sleazy, coked up Hollywood producer. And if you give a shit about the Quentin Tarantino expanded universe, he is playing the great grandfather of Donnie Donowitz, a.k.a. the Bear Jew from Inglorious oh. Bastards. Oh, wow. Yeah, he likes Neat. to throw in some little connections like that. Well, that's a real thing. I, I didn't even know he was doing those. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Vincent Vega, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction is the brother of Vic Vega, Mr. White in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, wow. Or Mr. Blonde. I can't remember which okay. one he is. Michael Madsen and John Travolta's okay. characters are brothers. There's a lot of like allusions back to this stuff. There's actually one that involved the ending of this movie, which we will not spoil yet because we're not up to it. Do you want to walk us through the end of the movie? Yeah, let's bring this sucker home. So, while Clarence is out getting food, Kakati's henchman Virgil catches Alabama alone in the couple's motel room. Virgil beats Bama, but she manages to kill him just before Clarence returns. The pair pack up the cocaine and head out to nurse her wounds and prepare to do the deal. At Lee Donowitz's hotel, the deal proceeds smoothly, and in the bathroom, Clarence is once again visited by a vision of Elvis who tells him he's doing great. Suddenly, the cops and the mobsters burst into the room all at once. A massive shootout ensues in which Lee, Elliot, the cops, and the mobsters are all killed. Clarence is hurt, but he and Alabama manage to sneak out of the hotel with the bag of cash. Next time we see him, they're living happily on a beach in Mexico along with their new son, Elvis. And also Andy and Red are there too. They're in the Shawshank Redemption. Andy is just polishing a boat inexplicably. <laughs> oh, can you remember how to say the town? What Awatanejo? No. Ziwatanejo. Ziwatanejo, yeah. yeah. That's they said Cancun, yeah. but I was just throw everybody off the trail. They're actually Ziwatanejo, yeah. Don't forget that name. You gotta remember it when you get out of jail. You're never gonna catch up to your buddy. I would just be at like a cab stand being like, it's something Neho. Wata something. Can you help me out here? I'm trying to get to freedom. <laughs> They'd be like a Neho. Oh, tequila. And they'll just take me to the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> but so I said that the Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper showdown is the most famous scene in this movie. If there is a contender, it is the Virgil, who is the henchman played by James Gandolfini, an Alabama mm -hmm. fight scene. And I call it a fight scene yeah. because it is not a beatdown or a torture scene. It starts out as and you think maybe it's just going to be. Luckily, they, they didn't go down that route and just have her be damsel in distress. She fucking right. kicks the shit out of him eventually. <laughs> She's a badass and she shows her toughness and that's what the scene is about. Her just taking some blows and continuing to tell him fuck you to his face and eventually getting the better of him, which is quite rewarding. After a solid 10 minutes of fighting, I had to check the time. I'm like, man, there's okay, they cut away to some scenes of the hamburger shack to extend the suspense of is Clarence going to make it back to save her? But guess what? Clarence doesn't save her. She saves her fucking uh -huh. self. And it's awesome. It is an incredible scene. First of all, Patricia Arquette is just magical. 
as Alabama. She is so, so good. good. So just the word defiant. <laughs> she is a badass. But Gandolfini is just so menacing and weird and just perfect for yeah. that role. Apparently, this is the role that got him Tony Soprano years later. But they watched the scene and were like, yeah, he yeah. can do it. And you definitely see some of those shadings. Well, I don't know if you do because you've never watched The Sopranos, but you know enough about the show. To oh, know, like, man. He beats some people up in The Sopranos and occasionally shoots a person or two. Just the menace. But also, like, he's definitely rock hard, right? He's a weirdo. He spends a lot of the time talking about his job, which is killing people. And the first time he did it, he threw up and then it gets easier and easier. And now he just likes to see the look in people's eyes. He's a total creep and a weirdo and he plays it beautifully. So good at playing creeps and weirdos. One of his finest roles was one of his final roles as a creepy weirdo hitman and killing them softly, uh, an underrated Andrew mm. Dominic movie starring Brad Pitt. But yeah, he just brings such violent, scary energy to this role. And then you think with all that build up, the fight scene might disappoint by not living up to the expectations you've set, but no, it exceeds them by just being far more brutal than a fight scene between a man and a woman has been in a mainstream film in a long time. Yeah, it's pretty challenging for that reason, just for that context of it. But this is the fight scene, just to reference our own show, which we love to do. This is a fight scene that Tom Jane versus the Russian wanted to be. Yes. And this fight scene nails it. Like it's similar level of brutality, drawn out length, number of different weapons and the tactics employed. But this one kills it, whereas that one ended up being a little bit flat. It reminded me of Haywire a little bit, which is the Steven Soderbergh, Gina Carano spy movie, which I don't know if you've had a chance to check out. Mm, it's no. quite good, despite the Gina Carano of it all. But there's a lot of like brutal man versus woman fights in that. But Gina Carano, first of all, as a person, is a highly decorated martial artist in her own right. And right. her character in the movie is a spy, a, a trained killer, an assassin. This Alabama, up until a few days ago, was just a, a new-to-the-job call girl who has no combat training right. as far as we know. So the, the dynamic between their characters could not be more different. He should be just dominating. And you could maybe make the argument there was a little hubris involved. He was playing with his food a little bit, so to speak, and then he paid for for it later, yeah. but still, it was just incredibly violent, incredibly brutal scene, but you still manage to stand up and cheer when it's over because the good guy won. And she's creative. She gets in with a bunch of different things, the lid of the toilet tank. She lights some Aquanet on fire and blasts flame in his face. There's all kinds of uh, scrappy things she does to keep the fight alive. And she eventually just gets him with a shotgun to the face, right? A few shots. Yeah, once <laughs> she... But first, like, the key thing is the corkscrew. It's the, oh, what do you right. call it, Swiss Army Knife corkscrew. That's his downfall. He says, go ahead and take a shot at me. She's holding up this tiny corkscrew and she gets him in the foot and that's when she gets the better of him and gets the shotgun away. It can be a tough scene to watch. Apparently the studio thought the scene was too violent and their note was just to make her hurt him less. Like, how is that your takeaway from that scene? I can understand the note that it's too violent, but that is truly bizarre that that was where they thought. Did they take something out? Was he brutalized more in, the, in a rough cut? I think their note was ignored, but I can't be okay. sure. She does polish him off. She unloads all the rounds in the shotgun directly into to his face and chest. So like he's pulverized by the end of it and that's pretty brutal, but it feels justified. Yeah, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And then it's pretty much straight from there to the hotel. She gets back to Clarence. Yep. He arrives and finds the scene and they try to cover up her injuries as best they can because it's off to meet Lee, right? Yeah. And the hotel showdown is really a lesson in screenwriting for like how to get all your competing factions into a room together and then make fireworks happen. There's so many different little groups vying for this cocaine for one reason or another, either they're because they're cops and they want to seize it, because they're the mob and they want it back, because they're Lee Donowitz and he wants to buy it, or because they're Clarence and the crew and they want to sell it. And you somehow manage to get them 
all in the room together and then let them take care of it themselves. And then Tarantino, not only that, you kind of see it coming. Okay, the cops are setting up this bust and we know that the mobster henchmen are hot on their trail. So it's going to come to a head. And then he throws you a twist on you is that Lee Donowitz has these well-armed bodyguards that are protecting him in his hotel suite. And when the cops show up, they point their guns at the cops and surprise you with the bodyguards like, I fucking hate cops, man. So they're, <laughs> they're threatening to kill the cops. He's like, put your guns down. I'll fucking kill you. You know I can do it because they've got machine guns and the cops have pistols. And so there's even a, a surprise faction that's equally armed and motivated to kill everyone else. It's a fun twist. It's it's 93 in LA and these guys hate the cops. Were they some like leftists? I didn't strike, <laughs> the henchmen didn't strike me as Antifa, but 92 was the Rodney King riots, right? Maybe these guys are, are with it. Yeah, you don't expect it from the, the tall, blonde, Nordic looking bodyguard, but yeah. Don't judge a book by its cover, I guess. And then obviously a gunfight erupts, spoiler alert. If you get 35 <laughs> people in a hotel room with a bunch of guns somebody's gonna fire one i don't even remember yeah. how it starts it starts between lee and elliot oh right lee finds out elliot's a snitch yeah and then he throws coffee on him and for some reason that causes chris Penn to shoot lee for the crime of coffee burning elliot it's kind of really fucked up there they might have all walked away <laughs> with their lives but no just about everybody in that hotel room gets shot except for well Clarence does get shot. He gets shot in the eye. Alabama yeah. makes it out unscathed for the first time in the movie. Dick Ritchie lives, right? Yeah, he sneaks out. I had to watch it a second time. In the middle of the chaos, he manages to tumble out of the door and run up the hallway before it gets too bad. Everyone else perishes, and Alabama shoots Chris Penn. Uh, apparently, that was a studio note as well. They wanted one of the other, like a mobster to shoot Chris Penn. <laughs> and I wondered about that because the first time I watched it, you have to watch really closely to see who shoots who because there's so many people shooting so many other people in a very tight time frame. But Chris Penn fires the shot that she thinks has killed Clarence. Yeah. Right. It ends up being a grazing shot on his eyeball. So she has a reason. She's like, you fucking killed my man. And to justify her a little bit more, the Nordic bodyguard has been shot and he's begging for help. He's saying, someone please call an ambulance. And Chris Penn comes around on him and says, I'll fucking call you a hearse. And he executes the bodyguard because the bodyguard's the one who killed Sizemore. So anyway, he looks enough like a creep that now between that and her thinking that he's the guy who killed Clarence, she is justified in taking out Chris Penn. I didn't bat an eye that she shot him. I was like, this is obviously a, a dirty yeah. cop. Who cares? <laughs> like, But I guess some people might have a problem with that. Not this guy. And then the ending is... Like you said, them on the beach in Mexico. This further drives home the fairy tale nature of the story because, first of all, they got 200K. They didn't even take the Coke. So it's not like they could have doubled their money and sold the Coke and right. kept the money. 200K will last you a while in Mexico, but it won't last you forever. They're in a tourist town. They're in Cancun. Americans visit there all the time. And like 40 people got shot in that hotel room. This would be all over. They'd be the top of the FBI's most wanted list for the yeah. rest of their lives. Nobody's letting them relax in Cancun forever. And this isn't the 1920s or something where you could disappear into Mexico. This is the night. Clarence Wiley, never heard of him, see? <laughs> yeah, there's direct flights in and out of Cancun every day from all over the States. So it is a fairy tale. But it's one I enjoyed. It's a nice yeah. one. Whenever the name Elvis comes up, that's where the surreal dreamy visions happen. And it comes up again in the end because they named their son Elvis and seals the deal on the fairy tale. It was Patricia Arquette's real son playing Elvis in that last Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh, it was nice. cute. So... That was True Romance, uh, a movie I think it's safe to say we both enjoyed a fair amount. I'm a big fan. Yeah. It's not without its issues, as we noted, but it's got a lot going for it, which is such like, a stupid thing to say about one of the most beloved movies of the 20th century. It's not bad. <laughs> it's got some stuff going for it. Yeah. Shut the fuck up, John. But no, I will not shut the fuck up. I will tell you that I enjoy the movie True Romance like some kind of controversial hot take. Hey, look, buddy, it's your pod. Your takes can be as hot as you like. Let's talk a little bit about the people involved in this movie and where they went. I'm not going to run down Quentin Tarantino's fucking career for you because everyone knows 
knows what no. he's at. But you mentioned he did some uncredited script doctor work. Do you want to know one of the things he did script doctoring on? Do you remember that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad SNL movie? It's Pat. I remember that it happened. He was a script doctor on that movie. Honestly, that sounds like fun. Who would not take that gig if you got a chance? If you put a gun to my head and said, can you swear that he was a script doctor on that movie? I'd say no, but it's all over the internet. Why would anyone make that up? Because it's hilarious, I guess. I could see why someone would make that up. But I choose to believe it. It's my headcanon now. He also did some rewrites on The Rock, which we mentioned last week because Hensley, or not last week, two weeks ago, because Hensley did rewrites on The Rock as well. It's like a party over at The Rock writer's room. But after From Dust Till Dawn, he would stop his screenwriting exploits unless it was for a movie he was going to direct. Maybe when he retires from directing, he'll give it a shot again a couple times. I know he said he wanted to write about film more than be involved in creating it. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked to have him pull a couple screenplays out of his drawer. Yeah, if they were sitting in the drawer, it'd be a shame for them to stay there. As far as Tony Scott, obviously RIP Mm -hmm. committed suicide in 2012 by jumping off the Vincent Thomas Bridge. Very sad. Funny tidbit for that. But he, after this, he he had a great career. He did Crimson Tide was his follow-up to this, another big hit, another good movie. Enemy of the State, which is a film I like and has probably risen in estimation since it was released only because it predicted the surveillance state of apps and technology tracking everything we do so minutely. It seemed like science fiction at the time, but only a short few years later, it was reality. Yeah. Um, Also noteworthy because it's a good Gene Hackman performance and one of the last we got. Oh, okay. Worth checking out. I'll have to go back. I know I saw it, but I remember very little of that one. Yeah, it's worthwhile. And then he did Man on Fire, which we talked about. Deja Vu, which I'm a sucker for Deja Vu. It's so stupid and trashy, but he manages to put like some real gravitas in it. It's a time travel movie with Denzel and Val Kilmer, two of our our faves here on The Zone. For sure. And Jim Caviezel plays the bad guy, which, hey, just like real life now, because he's a bad guy. (laughs) And after that, he followed up with Unstoppable, which I still haven't seen. Uh, I know it's Denzel on a train. That's all I know. Okay. And then Domino, which we will have to talk about at some point. Stay tuned for that one, because that is a bomb in every sense of the word. And then sadly, like we mentioned, his career was cut short. He he was a a favorite of mine. There was very few Tony Scott movies I watched and and did not enjoy, uh, which is why I keep bringing up Domino because it's like an outlier in his filmography. So Tom Sizemore was originally supposed to play Virgil, which I could totally see. Yeah, he would work for that. I don't, he does not have the physical presence that Gandolfini has. Even here where he's much thinner than he would become later in life, he's still just a massive dude. Yeah. And I think that really adds a lot to the scene. Sizemore's not a small man, but he just doesn't have that towering presence. Yeah, they got Gandolfini and that was like, you couldn't do better than that. So glad it worked out. So I alluded to the original ending. Clarence was not supposed to survive. He was going to die was the original ending mm. that Tarantino had written. And then for the followers of the Tarantino verse... In Reservoir Dogs, Mr. White mentions working with a girl named Alabama. Theory being, now he wrote True Romance before Reservoir Dogs was filmed. So the theory would be after things went south and Clarence died, she ended up working with Mr. White to make ends meet. So that is a less happy ending. Yeah, that's a much darker suggestion there. I like the beach in Mexico myself. I prefer a happy ending, especially when the movie is so grim and, and full of death. It's nice to end on a high note. I can enjoy a sour ending. Don't take that as me saying I need all my endings to be sunshine and roses, but the movie really makes you work for that happy ending and I think they earned it. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is we'll get around to talking about Hans Zimmer and the soundtrack from this movie has this very iconic marimba music that's just incredibly happy music and you're like, okay, this is fun at the beginning when it's like, this is really a happy romance and then the movie gets very dark and then comes back at the very end and it would have been hard to use it or it would have had a much darker meaning to be listening to this happy, really very light and fluffy theme music over a really dark 
dark ending. That would have been pretty interesting to chew on. I was a little taken aback to see that Hans Zimmer did the music. And maybe it's unfair to him, but he's so associated with like, and these kind of grand orchestral scores now that are are ominous, like Dune. That's kind of what I think of when I hear him. But then if you look back over the stuff he's worked on, he has a very varied filmography. Sure. Yeah. He was willing to do very different things, whatever the movie called for. Exactly. I was about to say whatever the movie called for. He's very much a master of all trades. So Christian Slater would have an up and down career, obviously. He had well-documented problems with drugs and alcohol, some legal issues. Okay. He had a DUI, domestic abuse complaint, tried to bring a gun on a plane, which, all right, someone watched season two of Atlanta, even though that happened first. But he never really stopped working. I guess you could say the quality of projects he worked on maybe dipped a little bit at times, but he, he had a big comeback with Mr. Robot. He was a, a main character on that show, a show that I've dabbled in but haven't fully finished. It's certainly yeah. well-made and good, but it's not quite my tempo, as J.K. Simmons would say. But he's had a comeback. He had a comeback with Mr. Robot, and then he did Dirty John and Dr. Death. So I guess he's a fan of Wondery Podcasts because those are both miniseries based on Wondery Podcasts. He's like, let me bring your true crime characters to life. He was good on Dr. Death. I liked him on that. Not exactly like a feel-good show, but he, he was playing a fun character. It's funny because when I think back to this time of this movie, Christian Slater is somebody who came on the scene and immediately was kind of ridiculed like he was a guy. We talked about Walken becoming self-parody or like Pacino, people who do versions of themselves in their later career. Christian Slater, everyone's like, ah, eh, this is just a guy doing a bad Jack Nicholson. Who is this guy I think he is? So I had this sort of built-in aversion to him, and he's a prickly weirdo in this movie, but he's totally works for this character. So I'm like, yeah, this is good. I totally accept what Christian Slater's doing, but it just feel like he's got a narrow range. Like there's not that much that you want to see him do as a young man, at least, where he combined this handsome looks with, I don't know, something weird about his personality that didn't let him, to me, be like full-on leading man guy. No, I think that's still true to this day, honestly. I don't think he plays Ernest very well. He needs to play like a little bit of a wise-ass or somebody who's in on a joke that you don't know. And that's a good way to put it. I think that's where he excels because you could see him playing, like he did try to take some more traditional leading man roles in the 90s or I guess he was uh, a sidekick in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with with Costner. He's just not good in those type of roles. I think he needs to have a little something extra going on with his character, which is probably, I see the Nicholson comparison. I think he probably wouldn't admit it now, but he probably did try to mimic a lot of Jack Nicholson's mannerisms and speech patterns when he was younger. He's kind of grown out of that, I would say, but I also think it's made him a little less interesting. I wish he would go back to it. Okay, that's funny. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he's not a favorite actor of mine. Really needs to be the right role, but I feel like this is the perfect Christian Slater role. Yeah, no, this is his wheelhouse. For me, this is one and done. That's the movie that Christian Slater was in, True Romance. Got it, saw it. I also enjoyed Broken Arrow, but I have no idea if that's just because I was a little kid at the time. That was his John Travolta nuclear warhead movie where Howie Long played a henchman, I think. Uh, Good times. weird Weird time in Hollywood back then. We can't leave without talking about Patricia Arquette, though. She has also had a full career, worked steadily through the 90s. She made a movie every year. Her film work has tapered off a little bit, but I think it's because she's found a home on prestige TV. She's doing really good stuff on the small screen. She did a long stint on Medium, which I don't know if I would quite call that prestige TV, but it was what she did after that I was really intrigued by. She was on Boardwalk Empire, which is a show I I watched and I remember enjoying her character. Escape from Dan Amora, which is a great show that she is great in, a really good miniseries. The Act, which is a show that I've been really meaning to try, but have not checked out yet. 
Severance, which I know you were dipping your toe into. I didn't get further than the toe, but the toe was enjoying it. And then she's on an upcoming Apple TV plus comedy series called High Desert. Awesome. So she's never slowed down. She still rules every time you see her in, in something. She's going to bring a little extra flair to it. Where else would you want to be right now as a working actor at any stage in your career, but getting these prestige shows like the list you just rattled off? That's killer. Yeah. Kudos to her. I don't think anybody really had any negative repercussions because of the failure of this movie because it was universally loved by critics and audiences that did get to see it almost right away. So it's one of those situations, I guess Scott Pilgrim's a good comparison where it came out and yeah, it failed, but everyone was like, everyone who worked on this is going on to do bigger and better things because the movie was great and nobody was mad. Did you have any (laughs) theories about maybe why the movie didn't find a bigger audience or what your final thoughts on it are? When it comes to a final thought this week, I'm a little bit unprepared. Just like I was back in the 90s, I was unprepared to see this movie. I just wonder if maybe America was a little bit unprepared too. Tarantino now is a genre of his own and everyone gets him and everyone goes, oh, this is what Tarantino is. This is the things that happen in Tarantino's worlds. But I think maybe it took time. Like he was cool with the cool kids, but I think it might have taken time for America in a mainstream big way to accept him to get what he was doing. And I don't know if the box office of Pulp Fiction or some of the other things that came out right after this proved me wrong. But I think maybe it took time for us to get on his wavelength. And that's my only theory about why. As much as Tony Scott recognized that this was something cool and fresh and fun for him to do in Hollywood, everybody couldn't see that. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a very good point about Tarantino not really being the speed of mainstream America and filmgoers at the time. Pulp Fiction was a breakout success financially, which I think changed the landscape. It definitely changed the landscape. Like you said, Tarantino is a genre now, and that's why because Pulp Fiction made $215 million worldwide. But it also won the Palme d'Or. It had a huge buzz around it. Every trade magazine, newspaper was just raving about it up until the release date. And it had a huge head of steam behind that Harvey Weinstein threw his considerable weight behind that movie to make sure it was a hit. And I don't know that anybody gave True Romance that same amount of love. It was just a little ahead of its time, which feels rote to say, but you can literally trace the mainstreamification of this kind of movie to a date. And that date is the release date of Pulp Fiction. It just wasn't there yet. But no one's shedding any tears for true romance. <laughs> it's had quite a life of its own since it was released. It's doing quite well. Happy ending then, I guess. Just like the movie. Look at that. Well, thank you guys so much for <laughs> listening. We're going to be back next week with a fun one. We've had a few super dark, violent movies lately. Yeah. We're going to switch it up a little bit. We're doing Evolution. If you guys remember Evolution, the 2001 David Duchovny alien comedy with Sean William Scott and Orlando Jones. Wow. This is going to be interesting. I fucking loved this movie when it came out. I saw it in theaters. I watched it on DVD. It's a favorite of mine that I have not watched in probably 17, 18 years. So okay. I'm sure the special effects are terrible now, but I'm hoping everything else holds up. Do I need to smoke something before watching this movie? I'm getting that vibe. It would not hurt. I definitely okay. will. Again, <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. You can follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Send us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Any movie suggestions, feedback, compliments, you name it. Say hello. You can always leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that lets you leave reviews you can rate us on spotify we appreciate seeing those numbers tick up every so often it's awesome it says feel good feels real nice and i uh, will see you next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone, the blast zone. We want- <laughs>